Romans chapter 7. Little boy came up to his daddy and said, Daddy, there's a bear in the backyard. The dad says, looks in the backyard and says, Son, that's not a bear. That's Joe Smith's dog. Now listen, go to your room and ask God to forgive you for lying. Remember, purposeful exaggeration like that is a lie. The son wanders off to his room, returns, returns shortly thereafter, and his father asks him, so did you ask God to forgive you? The son says, I did, but God said it was okay. In fact, he said that the first time he saw Joe Smith's dog, he thought it was the bear too. Funny thing about forgiveness. As we are going through this teaching on grace and that we have been purchased with purpose and God unfolding this drama or docudrama of grace, I've kind of stepped back a little bit before we go any further and we need to really ask this question again, what is grace? What is grace? Many times we confuse grace with God's forgiveness. Let me just say that one more time. Many times we confuse God's grace with God's forgiveness. Like in, when it comes to salvation, we would venture to say that we are saved by grace through faith. That is through God's forgiveness of our sins. And, and the problem though, even though God's grace certainly encompasses God's forgiveness, God's grace, even in salvation, is much more than this. For example, it includes the regenerating work of God's spirit. That's God's grace. It includes justification, not just that our sins are forgiven, but Christ's righteousness has been imparted or imputed to us. That's God's grace. And so, in, and even before we come to Christ, by God's spirit, we're convicted of sin. That is God's grace. And so what we, do, what we need to do is we need to be able to expand our definition of grace. To include something much more than just forgiveness. Like for example, someone may do us wrong, our child may do something wrong. We say, I'm going to give you grace this time. After our child, you know, has, for example, finished washing our car with steel wool. I'm going to give you grace this time. I forgive you. What that means is I forgive you and I'm not going to punish you. Maybe we see they didn't do it on purpose. They did it more out of ignorance. They thought, wow, if, if using a sponge gets the dirt off, what, do you, what would steel wool do? It's really going to get the dirt off. Well, yeah, it does a little bit more than that, though. And so we say, I'm going to give you grace. I'm not going to come down on you. But th this, would, this would equate grace with forgiveness, and, and it's much more than that. And so our view of grace needs to expand and as this happens, I believe that we're going to be able to understand even more this drama of grace that God unfolds in our life every day. I want you to turn there to Romans 6, 14. We find this word grace. Now I am purposely tailoring this sermon as far as understanding God's grace I'm tailoring it with a slant. I'm coming at it from a slightly different angle tonight. And you're going to see that in just a moment. Romans 6.14 For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. You are not under law, but under grace. What does this mean? What does it mean we are not under law, but we are under grace? Let me share a little story with you. And when I was a young man, and I was several years old in the Lord, I would find myself as I would go to Bible studies, I would see other Christians, uh, and they just, they were smiling. They just seemed to be so filled with joy. Uh, I, I would venture to say they really loved God. When they worshipped, they were many times intense about it. And I would many times go to these meetings and feel somewhat spiritually inadequate. Say more in the service. 
they're, they're steps ahead of me in their walk with Christ. And it would make me honestly feel spiritually inadequate, inferior. I had a weight of guilt on my shoulders. And I was struggling as a young man. How do I, how do I deal with this guilt? How do I walk in freedom from, honestly, it was not just guilt, it was a disabling guilt. It would impede my ability to really worship God and, and to really search scriptures because it was, it was this sense of condemnation, feelings of failure. Let me ask you this. In Proverbs, it says that a righteous man may fall seven times but rise again. Here's my question to you. How does a righteous man fall seven times and not just say, I'm going to give up. I'm tired of my failure. I just want to give up. Because the righteous man who falls seven times and that weight of guilt is so heavy on his shoulders, he is going to want to give up. He's going to say, why am I even doing this? What's the sense? How do we deal with this weight of guilt? And not want to give up. How do we rise a seventh time when we lose our temper again? How do we rise a seventh time and remove and shuck off this weight of guilt when we stumble into lust yet again? When we're filled with worry and fear that immobilizes us. How do we do this? How do we, after becoming very critical, rise up a seventh time? ...under the weight of that guilt. Sin produces guilt. Our problem is we go to God, we ask him, please forgive me again. And we are so disappointed with ourselves. And we feel this weight of guilt. Now there are two extremes that people in our day tend to gravitate to... And I need to deal with these two extremes. And as we deal with these two extremes, you're going to see that these extremes misunderstand law and they misunderstand grace. And as a result, this weight of guilt is going to remain. Now, I'm going to turn it this way so that everybody can see. All righty. And so we have this idea of heavy guilt. The result is because of sin. And the two extremes then, on the one hand, on the one hand, is going to be what I'm going to call legalism. How do we deal with this guilt? We just say, you know what, you just need to buck up. You need to try harder. You need to exercise more willpower. You need to do more. More. Just like Tim the Toolman Taylor. More power. We just need more. We just need to obey God more. We need to just some. Maybe if we study the Bible more or pray more. And, and, and we are, we're, we, what we do is we strap on this sense of urgency or this sense of more and we begin to load ourselves, actually, with even more guilt. Legalism is what drives every single religion that has been birthed on planet Earth except Christianity. And yet many Christians get caught up in legalism. All of these world religions suppose that by observing this body of rules that I'm just going to, for today, I'm going to call law. If we obey this law, we will gain a right standing with God. He's going to be happy with me and we'll get to live with him forever. And every religion is driven by this. Just do the right thing. Just do the right thing. If you do, listen to me now, if you do the right thing, God will smile upon you. And he will be pleased and he will let you go to heaven. 
Many people start with the Spirit. And after they get saved, the rest of their Christian life is human effort. Paul addressed this in Galatians chapter 3. Having begun with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? And they took the ceremonial law and circumcision and they basically were driven by this desire to, to add to faith in Christ, good works, so that they would become these super Christians. And we need to step back and begin to ask, well, then where does the, where, what place does the law have? So I, I, I've seen many people caught up in legalism do this. Since they see these areas of sin in their life, they latch on to these other rules that you're not going to find necessarily in Scripture, but they might have some wisdom. And they, if they feel that they can clear those bars that they have set, they feel good about themselves. And that helps relieve this weight of guilt, or at least temporarily. So they lower the bar. What then happens is they step onto this treadmill of performance. If I just do more, if I do more, God will really be happy with me. And he'll love me more. And I'll get, the, get, I'll get this. I'll obtain this right standing with God. On the other hand, we have... Now, I don't want to scare you with this term. But we have what, I, what is commonly called... Are you ready for this? Antinomianism. Yeah antinomianism don't let that word scare you anti meaning against nomianism coming from the greek word nomos which means law so against law and what these people do is they say since it's not about rules but about relationship have you heard that phrase before it's not about rules but about relationship we need to get rid of the law see the law condemns and so, if I'm not going to feel condemned, then we just need to get rid of the law. And many people, they take the Old Testament and they get rid of all of the rules and the regulations and the laws and the do's and the don'ts. And they toss it out the window and they just look at the Israelites' examples. And that's the only purpose of the Old Covenant. The only purpose why we have the, the Old Testament. They get rid of the law. Many of them, in getting rid of the law, become very cavalier towards sin. As a matter of fact, some during John's day became so cavalier doing law so nonchalantly and embracing at least what they understood to be grace. Jude writes this. He says... I, I, says, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to the saints. For certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. This is the degree to which antinomianism can go. They get rid of the law. They get rid of all of the rules. There are no rules. It's just grace. And they misunderstand grace for God's forgiveness. Now again, I am not saying that God's grace or a part of God's grace is not God's forgiveness. Of course it is. When I come to Christ, part of his grace was to wash me clean. This is the, the force of the cross and the implications. One of the implications of the cross. That Jesus paid the penalty and my, so that my sins can be forgiven. So I'm not saying that grace does not include God's forgiveness. Of, of course it does. But when we go to the extent where we get rid of the law... Because after, a while, after, after all, we are no longer under law but under grace. We embrace God's grace. Or at least, let me word it this way. We embrace a misunderstanding of God's grace. 
it opens the door to sin. Grace then becomes a license to sin. And I shared this story with you before back in college. I spoke with someone and man, they were so convinced I am saved by grace. I'm saved by Jesus, my savior. He had just told me about how he got drunk the night before and that he goes to these parties every weekend. And I said, so are you trying to tell me that, that Jesus isn't in control of your life? Uh, that he's your savior, but not your Lord? And he says, no, I mean, one day he will be my Lord, but right now he's just my savior. And I had to challenge him and I said, I'm sorry, but if Jesus is not your Lord, he absolutely cannot be your savior. And he had a misunderstanding of God. You know what, I'll get drunk tonight and tomorrow morning I'll go to, as some people in, in the body of Christ would say, I'll just go to confession and all my sins will be absolved. Or I'll just, after I sin, I'll just pray God will forgive me. And grace becomes a license for sin. This is called antinomianism. It is a death trap. Both of these extremes are death traps. And yet people in the body of Christ, because they do not understand grace, because this weight of guilt is so heavy upon them, they tend to gravitate to these extremes. And so what we need to do is we need to understand the place of the law. Then we can understand God's grace and see it in all of its magnificence and all of what it implies for us, for me as a Christian today. It wasn't just something that God did when I was saved. I get to walk in it, church. You get to walk in it every day. And the result of embracing his grace moment by moment is the removal of this weight of guilt. Let me just first say this. It says we are not under law, but under grace. We need to realize that Christ did not come to abolish the law. Christ did not come to get rid of the law. As New Testament believers, we don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, well, they're not for me today. Because it's all about relationship and not rules. Now, I'm going to need to dig into that phrase. Because as the devil has it, many times he presents something that sounds good, but it's just a little off. And when we start saying it's all about relationship and not rules, we are gravitating towards antinomianism. And it's easy to, at that point, to begin to open wide the door to sin so that grace becomes a license for sin. After all, God will forgive me. But Christ did not come to abolish the law. It says he came to fulfill it. Now, he's not just talking about the ceremonial law. After all, it does say, don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. The body, the body casts a shadow. The body is found in Christ. <clears throat> so he's referring to the ceremonial law that Christ, that, all, that were shadows, and all of it pointed to Jesus. Now we know that when Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it, that he also here included the moral law. I'm, I'm referring now to Matthew 5 in which he is saying unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Because the Pharisees had this very limited view of the law. If I, just, if I just do this and I do this and I clear this hurdle, I'm going to be right with God. And they're puffed up about their abilities. But what is the purpose of grace? We're saved by grace through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. So that no one can boast. And Jesus then gives us six examples of following the spirit of the law. And not just the letter of the law. Jesus fulfilled the moral law. Not to get rid of it. But to become that perfect sacrifice that didn't just observe the letter, but the heart of the law. Such as, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you that anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. 
You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you that if a man looks on a woman to lust after her, he has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And now he's going to the deeper implications of these laws. Jesus did not try to get rid of the moral law. Now we need to understand the law is used in a number of ways in the New Testament. And and I'm going to confess to you, it can be confusing sometimes. Sometimes when he talks about the law, he's talking about the moral law. Sometimes when he's talking about the law, he's talking about the ceremonial law. Sometimes when he's talking about the law in, in the phrase such as the law and the prophets, he takes the entire Old Testament and he divides them into two categories, the law and the prophets. In 1 Corinthians 14, he takes the whole Old Testament and calls it the law. And he said, you've heard it said in the law. And then he quotes from Isaiah, one of the prophets. Now, on top of all of this, he uses the law in Romans 7 to mean simply a principle. The law of sin and death. He's talking about the principle of sin and death. That sin breeds death. That is a spiritual principle. It's like a natural law in the universe, like gravity. It is as real as that law of gravity. It's a spiritual law. Sin breeds death. Jesus did not come to get rid of the law. And those who tend to gravitate towards antinomianism, what they end up saying is it's not about rules, but about relationship. Now, maybe they're trying to say something, but they're saying it in a way that is very unscriptural. My relationship with Jesus Christ is central, but does that mean I get rid of the rules? What about the rule or the commandment, do not commit adultery? Do we throw that command? I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments. If we're going to get rid of the law, if we're going to get rid of the rules and the regulations, don't we have to get rid of that one too? Then why is it repeated in the New Testament? How about do not steal? That's one of the Old Testament laws. We find it in the New Testament. And so what we end up having is we end up having these rules in the New Testament that the apostles say, you need to do this. You need to not do this. You see, the problem is our view of the law. The problem is the place of the law. Now, I want us to look at this phrase. I need you to follow me here. Because this is so prevalent in Christianity. We do tend to gravitate towards legalism. We do tend to gravitate towards antinomianism. But there is a central truth that we need to hold on to. And once we get that place of the law and we begin to now understand grace and all its implications, it truly brings freedom. This is why James says in chapter 1, he speaks of looking into the perfect law that does what? Brings freedom. Whoa. Not bondage. Freedom. But that is only when the law is given its proper place. And therefore we understand grace. If we misunderstand the place of the law, we will misunderstand grace. Let's go back to that phrase, Romans 6, 14. We are not under law but under grace. There are many, many more verses that we could talk about to demonstrate Jesus' purpose is not to take the moral law of God and throw it out the window. After all, what is, what are the commandments? The commandments simply are a reflection of God's holiness. Are they not? They are a reflection of God's holiness. If we get rid of the moral law, what picture of holiness do we have? Oh, I'm just going to follow Jesus. I want to be like Jesus. That's awesome. Tell me about Jesus. What did he do and what did he not do? How did he live his life? You want to be like him? Then tell me how he lived. 
Well, he never sinned. Mm. What is sin? Sin is obedience. Excuse me. Sin is disobedience to God. Interesting. We want to get rid of the law, but we still want to obey God. So do you see the... The, the, the problem that develops when we start gravitating towards antinomianism. Church, this is truly very, very significant. I heard someone say just the other day, do you want to go deeper with God? You don't have to. Now, let's understand bloggers and even pastors, writers... Uh, people on TV, they love to say things that seem way out there in left field just to get your attention so you'll read their article. Yeah, it's a ploy to pull people in. Unfortunately, in this blog, he didn't define what he meant by going deeper with God, and he didn't go back at the conclusion to explain it. But church, I want to tell you, God longs, God wants us as his people to go deeper with him. Going deeper with God does not mean getting caught up in legalism, which was his mistaken point. That somehow if we want to go deeper with God, we're caught up in the old covenant and we're bringing the old covenant into the new. Rather frustrating article. But the truth is, his point of avoiding legalism, it was true. It's just that his article, because it was not explained very well, caused the reader to gravitate towards antinomianism. That is unbiblical. What is the place of the law? We're not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? We need to understand what it means to be under. To do that, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans 3. And in verse 10, and we covered this in theology class, but so for those of you who have taken the theology class in this, uh, this particular lesson, uh, this is old hat to you. You've, we've been through this actually two or three times. But verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 9, it says, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all, as better than the Jews. Uh, we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. What we find then from verse 10 on is an understanding of what it means to be under sin. What we read then is there's no one that's righteous. And let me paraphrase for you. You're all un we are all under bondage of sin. We're all under the control of sin. You see, he defines for us what it means to be under sin. It means to be controlled by it, in which sin is your master. So what does it mean to not be under law? It means that the law doesn't control us. It means that there is not this compulsion to obey it for the wrong reason, that there is something in us I must obey, I must, I must do the right thing. This is what consumed Martin Luther before he came to Christ. You remember the movie in which he felt like he was never doing enough and he had to do more and more. And it was this compulsion that, that gripped him and, and, it, and, and it, he lived his life under law in which the law controlled him. But he could not fulfill the law because he was still under sin. Sin controlled him so he could not fulfill the law. This is the case for every single unbeliever, every single what the Bible calls a sinner. You see, you are a saint... That is a holy one who occasionally sins. You are not a sinner who occasionally does good. Because we have been rescued. We've been given a new nature. Sin, law and sin no longer control us. And this is the point of the entire chapter of Romans 6. Sin and the law does not control me anymore. I've been given a new nature when I believe in Jesus. He has given me his spirit and his spirit has empowered me to follow after God. I don't have to rely on just do better. I don't have to say just more willpower. Because in the flesh I could never do that. In the spirit... 
having begun with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? I am not going to do it in my own strength. I must rely on the power of the spirit. And so to be under law means to have this sense of obligation to obey the law so that somehow I will please God, he will smile upon me, and he will give me life. Now we know this because in the very next chapter, Paul tells us. He's try- he tells us in verses in chapter 7, I'm sorry, we were in chapter 6. Chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, he says that sin deceived me. It made me believe that by following the law, I would find life. Church, you see, the problem is not the law. The problem is not the law. The problem is my view of the law. The problem is the proper place we give to the law. Romans 7, 12, it says that the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. God's purpose isn't to get rid of the law. God's purpose is to empower us by his spirit to walk in it, to be obedient, to follow after Christ. You see, when the law is compulsory, it it, it compels me, it is the driving force in my life. Rather than grace, it sets me up for failure. Paul spends so much time in the book of Romans. You will never find a right standing by following the law. That is not its purpose. The purpose of of the law is to shine the holiness and the glory of God. And as we see the holiness of God, what happens to me as a sinner? I'm convicted of my sin. I see holiness and I see life. And what does it reflect in me but sin and death? So as a result, the law ends up putting me to death. It highlights how unworthy I am of God. So how are you going to become worthy of God? By obeying the law more? Paul says, absolutely not. You are powerless To gain a right standing before God by observing the law. And that's the whole idea of justification. Because justification is our sins are washed away. Christ's righteousness is imparted to us. And God views us then. In the righteousness of his son. That's, this is the, I'm kind of giving you an overview of, so, of much of the book of Romans. This is where Paul, if you get what I'm talking to you tonight, you're going to be able to go through the book of Romans and say, yeah, I get it. Of course. That's the place of the law. Can I ask you, why do you obey God? I want you to think about that for a moment. Why do you obey God? And I want you to write your answer down in your notes there in the bulletin where it says sermon notes. Why do you obey God? Just take a moment right now. Why do you obey God? Why do you do what he tells you to do? That we could say, I do it because I love him. Yes. And so that is relationship. And so the focus of Christianity is this relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you obey him so that he will love you? Or perhaps love you more? Do you obey him so that he will be happy with you? Or so that he will give you grace? That's a contradiction in terms. Now, when I ask my child to do something and they disobey me, do I love them less 
No. Am I displeased? Church, yes, I am. Is that, is that wrong for me to be displeased? Absolutely not. When we, when we disobey God, he is displeased. He is displeased with my sin. So here is what I... Many times I've sat down with my kids and I've explained it this way. I've said, Juliana, again, I say, sweetie, your dad loves you so much. And I'm not, dis I'm not disappointed in you, but you need to realize I'm disappointed, I'm displeased in what you just did. I love you so much. But I'm displeased with what you just did, and because of this, I need to discipline you. You see, this weight on our shoulders, this guilt, is not just be it's not because of the law. And so the, res the, the, the answer to that is let's get rid of the law. What we have done is we have given the wrong place to the law. Somehow by obeying God, we have thought maybe he will love me more. Maybe if I obey God... He will finally be pleased with me. Church, if God's love for us is infinite, if it's infinite, can you do something that will make him love you more? Can you do something, if his love is infinite, that will make him love you any less? And the scripture is clear on this. Absolutely not. I know as a young man, I had this view of God that he was, he was, he, he just had this irritation with me. There's Mike and he blew it again. And I just, I, I sensed this disappointment. And I misunderstood the place of the law. I was trying to gain more of God's favor. Let me pose it to you this way. In worship here on Saturday nights, when you see other people around you worshiping intensely, and so my question to you is, why do you worship intensely? Do you feel compelled that you must worship intensely? I'm going to say this, if you do, then, then why? Many times it's so that people will think well of you. Why do you have regular quiet times? Let's not step back and say, wait a second, that's law, so let's get rid of that. If I don't have my quiet, if I don't spend time in the word or in prayer, there's no big deal with that. Well, the problem is that usually happens because we're bored with the, with the word of God. We're bored with prayer. Our, our relationship with God feels cold. And, why, and, and is there a problem? I hope, I hope that we would say, yeah, that, there really is a problem here. But if we have our quiet times so that we'll feel better about ourselves, so that others will think, wow, you are so godly, that somehow God will now smile upon you. But if you miss your quiet time, he is just so hurt and upset. This is a wrong understanding of, of this invitation to spend time with Jesus. It does say that the blessed man is, meditates on the, on the law of God day and night. And the result is that he's going to be a tr like a tree planted by streams of water. We do not want to just simply say, well, that's just law. That is man's imposition of law upon us that we somehow must have quiet times. Would it be an imposition of man's law to say you must love God? That you must obey God? That you must seek after God? That you must long for him? These are things that are the result of this relationship with Jesus Christ. 
What do we hope to gain by following God, by obeying God, by the rules? What do you hope to gain? Do you hope to gain his favor? Do you hope to gain this level of or status of super Christian? No. The more I love Jesus, the more I want to obey him. The more I don't want to steal, commit adultery, lust after a woman, lie, cheat, defraud my brother. I don't want to do those things. So it's wrong for us to say it's not about rules, it's about relationship. It is about rules. Because the, the relationship with Jesus Christ, with, that I have with Jesus Christ, overflows in following him. So do you understand? I want to obey. Now I did say, and I want you to turn there, James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, he says this, after looking intently into a mirror, which would be the word of God, he says in verse 25, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. The law gives freedom it's not about tossing out the law it's about me building this loving relationship with jesus and this longing and desire to follow after him to to obey the commands of christ if you obey my commands you will abide in my love he says that these commands overflow as a result of abiding in this love. When this happens, we gain freedom. We gain an ability to overcome sin. Why? Because my relationship with Jesus is going deeper. I am growing. This relationship is broadening. I'm understanding more of his love for me. And when I understand his love for me, I want to follow him. I want to do what he says. I don't do it grudgingly. At least I, I don't think I do. I, I, I follow him because I realize what he has done to rescue me from my sin. And in this relationship and this understanding of his love makes me want to follow after him. And in doing that, I'm leaving the sin behind. I don't do it so that he'll love me more. Somehow I'll gain a right standing with him. Now that we understand the place of the law. Now that we understand the place of the law, we can begin to understand more of his grace. Grace is more than forgiveness of sins. It's not just for salvation. You see, we need grace, God's grace, to empower us to obey him. It's rooted in a relationship with Jesus Christ. As he pours out that grace, I now am able to follow him. I'm able to obey him. He can change my bad attitude. I can actually hate what is evil and cling to good. But it's not in me. It's got to come from God. It's got to be his empowerment. So here is what I'm going to suggest. Grace is everything that he has that I do not. But ever so desperately need. Now I've mentioned that definition to you. That is a broad definition. But for us to go forward in understanding God's grace poured out in our life, we have to see that it's more than just God's forgiveness of my sins, though, it's, uh, though concerning salvation, that's the beginning point. But God's grace is so far greater than this. God's grace empowers me now in my relationship and understanding his love. His grace now empowers me to live for him. I need God's grace to endure trials. I need God's grace to forgive others when I get hurt. I need God's grace to not worry or fear. The problem is... Many people use the law 
to build their relationship with Jesus rather than obeying, rather than building the relationship with Jesus so that they will obey him, i.e. follow the law. Now, when I say the law, I'm talking about the moral law. I'm talking about the ethics that Christ taught. You can read about them in Matthew 5, 7, 5 6, and 7. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to go back to Romans chapter 6, verse 14. So let's do that. Romans 6, 14. Because up to this point, our discussion of we are not under law, but under grace, is for the most part taken out of context. I believe we've understood it, but what I want to do now is understanding the fact that we are not under law, but we are under grace. Now let's see how Paul uses this in context. He says this, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. Not being under law, but being under grace is the reason why sin cannot have its mastery over me. Now, when we understand that the law, he's not trying to throw out the law, but it's not by observing the law that I'm going to gain a right standing with God. When I understand grace then, that it is a daily empowerment that he gives me to follow after him, to long for him, to love him more and obey him more. Now I look at this passage and I say, see, that's why I'm not a slave to sin anymore. That's why sin does not master me anymore because I'm under grace. Grace empowers me to break the, to, to, to walk in freedom from the sin. Grace empowers me to not be pulled into the things of the world or the way the world thinks, but to be pulled into this new nature, this new worldview, this new way of viewing God's creation. God's grace empowers me to follow him. And as a result of this, because of his grace, we cannot be mastered by sin anymore. Now, I'm not saying that we don't sin. We are, we are saints who occasionally sin. But because of his grace, he has not only saved me, but he empowers me. He empowers you every day to live in freedom from that master called sin. So here's my suggestion. When you're gathered together and you're having a bummer of a week, you blew it so many times you've lost count and that weight of guilt weighs heavy upon your shoulders, understand that that guilt is there because you are missing something of an understanding in this relationship with God. And it is almost always that you have failed to grasp the extent of his grace. That he loves you no matter what. He can't love you anymore. That he actually offers you the freedom to walk after him. That he actually rejoices over you with singing. That he is the God who sings love songs. Sorry, this doesn't sound real masculine. I realize that. But he is the God who sings love songs over you. That his affection for you is beyond your understanding. It is so, it is so vast. It is so deep and rich. That, that we are invited to know this love that surpasses knowledge. You get that? And because we have failed to grasp this, we feel this weight on our shoulders. We feel imprisoned by this. We feel like failures because we have failed to see this awesome God who has rescued me from my sin. And I'm not under the slavery of sin and I'm not under the slavery of the law to somehow gain this understanding. It is purchased for, for me through Jesus Christ. It is not because of anything that I have done. 
but it has only been given to me because I chose to surrender to him. So the next time we feel that weight of guilt, that is the devil whispering about maybe how God has not forgiven you. Or how could God forgive you again? And it begins to choke the life out of us because we are failing to grasp his grace. And I'm going to suggest that when we understand his grace and we understand the vastness of his love and now this empowerment he gives us each day, we will be able to say, I am not ashamed. This shame, this guilt that's hanging over me, it's been, the sin has been forgiven. I can walk in freedom from this. And we thank him for his grace. Can you stand with me? Father, I want to thank you that you have rescued us from our sin. That sin doesn't have mastery over us. It's not in control. Forgive us, God, when we have yielded that that rightful place that you have to our own desires. And we have sinned. But your grace empowers us every day. Help us, God. As we go deeper with you in this understanding of you, in this deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. As we understand more of your love for us. God, give us that picture. Give us that understanding of the cross. And and, and the vastness of your love. The vastness of your mercy. So that in view of your mercies, we would present our bodies as living sacrifices. We love you, Jesus, so much. I thank you that you rejoice over us with singing. I thank you, Father, that yes, you do forgive us. I thank you, Father, that this sin that we can feel so ashamed of does not turn your heart away from us. your heart longs for us to follow after you so that the righteous man though he falls seven times would rise again raise us up God lift this burden of guilt and shame that we or the devil has placed on our shoulders and we turn to you thank you for the vastness of your forgiveness Thank you that you smile upon us, that you love us with an unending, unfailing love. This is your grace. This empowers us. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have an awesome, awesome week. Remember, tomorrow morning, 10 o'clock, our house for evangelism. Love to see you then. God bless.